Our passage today comes from Romans chapter 13, verses 11 through 14. Uh, from these verses, I'll preach from the title, Today Changing Hope. Today Changing Hope. As long as my wife Maggie and I have been together, we have enjoyed taking walks together. We do, however, have different philosophies about taking walks. Maggie enjoys walking for the sake of walking. Maybe we call her a walking purist. I, on the other hand, like to have a destination. Not that walking and talking with my wife is not enough for me. It's just that the whole experience of taking a walk is enhanced if we are walking to get a cup of coffee, say, or to grab some dinner at one of our favorite neighborhood spots. Knowing where we are going changes my experience of getting there. In his letter to the church in Rome, the Apostle Paul reminded the Christians where they were going. In saying that the day is near, Paul drew on the, the Jewish memory of the day of the Lord, in which God's perfect justice would finally be fulfilled for all time. For the early Christians, the, uh, the future hope was then reoriented toward their Lord's return, when Jesus would make all things new. And this future hope, this awareness of where they were going, was supposed to change how those Christians lived day to day. Paul pressed the Roman Christians to live with moral integrity because their salvation was near. Now, there are a lot of reasons why moral integrity can be hard for us. For example... Many of our neighbors don't share our Christian convictions, and frankly, it can sometimes just get tiring to go against the flow. Or we find ourselves in a new life situation, a promotion that comes with a large salary bump, a season when the dating pool seems to have dried up, the instance of yet another painful expression of injustice. And we wonder whether the Christian ethics that we used to think were timeless are maybe actually more situational. Maybe what seemed greedy to me before now seems like a reasonable standard of living. Maybe what seemed like a way to honor God with my sexuality now seems naive. Maybe what seemed like a lifelong commitment to justice was just a temporary youthful phase of idealism, and now I have to grow up into the real world. Paul's insight in these verses is that to remain faithful to the countercultural way of Jesus in the present, we need a hopeful conviction about the future. It is simply too easy for us to get turned around and confused. It is too easy for us to justify self-centered decisions. So on this first Sunday of Advent, a season during which we purposefully anticipate our Lord's return, here is the main only point of this sermon. 
Hope for the future inspires faithfulness today. Hope for the future inspires faithfulness today. Paul says to the church, you know what time it is. And the word for time here is the Greek word kairos, which has less to do with the time that you find on your watch and more about your place in time. It's like your where in time. It's a, a season. It's a location. It's the appointed time. And Paul says in this kairos time, in this appointed time, in this season, your salvation is nearer. For Paul, Jesus was a person of history. He was a person who lived and breathed and ate and laughed and walked and talked and weeped. Jesus existed in history. And this Jesus was crucified, resurrected, and then ascended. And before he ascended, he promised that he would return. And so for Paul, the Jesus of history is going to come back, which means that as time passes, we are getting closer to his return. Now, you and I are likely to bump into people who are perfectly okay with a spiritual Jesus, a Jesus who maybe lived and, and maybe was crucified, but certainly did not resurrect from the dead. A Jesus who had some good moral teachings and some interesting insights and some behavior that some of it at least is worth emulating. The Jesus who is more spiritual in nature doesn't require us to think and believe and act as though he was actually a person in history. Paul is not particularly interested in the spiritual Jesus. For, for, for Paul, Jesus' historicity, his place in reality, is what requires an ethical response. Because Jesus actually lived and actually talked and taught and was crucified and resurrected and then ascended to the Father where he is ruling and reigning until all enemies are placed under his feet when he returns because Jesus existed in history. He requires an ethical response. He requires that we live differently than we would otherwise. For Paul, there is the anticipation that when Jesus returns, the dead in Christ will be raised. Before the rest of us greet our returning Savior for his final judgment when God sets all things right. Jesus himself gives us a glimpse of that future day in Matthew chapter 25. Referring to himself, Jesus says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. This is the scene of judgment when Jesus returns and sets all things right. And I wonder... What is provoked in you this morning when we consider that final judgment? How many of us get real excited? How many of us feel real comfortable right now? How many of us are saying, this sermon could just last as long as it needs to last? What is provoked by this scene of judgment? For many of us, the, the first instinct, if not the 
predominant instinct is fear. When we consider Christ's return, some of us are asking, have I done enough? Have I lived good enough? Am I going to be a sheep or a goat? Some of us who grew up in church remember walking the center aisle Sunday after Sunday for the altar call, wanting to just be sure. (laughs) Because what if the other times I wasn't sincere? Uh, What if the sins that I committed since the last time I gave my life to Jesus are so significant uh, that I better get another conversion in just to be sure? For, For some of us, when we consider Christ's return, the, 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 the instinct is fear. And so I want you to notice that Paul says that our salvation is near. Paul does not say our potential salvation, our possible salvation, our maybe if we're good enough salvation. Paul does not say that our trial is near. Paul does not even say that our judgment is near. Paul says that our salvation is near. And this is because for Paul, salvation is not just the moment of conversion. Have you been saved? Now that's an important moment, amen? We want to say yes to Jesus, to give our entire lives to Jesus. But for Paul, salvation begins then, but does not end until Jesus returns. Salvation is a lifelong leaning into Jesus, a lifelong process of being saved by Jesus. And of course, we know that this salvation is always and only by the grace of God, experienced by putting whatever amount of faith we have in our Lord Jesus. If our first instinct and loudest instinct is fear. When we consider the return of our Savior, it is possible that our view of salvation is too small. It is not cosmic enough. It is possible that we have whittled down God's cosmic plan of saving the universe to my own personal morality. But God's vision is bigger, and Jesus' salvation is much greater. I am reading Harry Potter for the first time. I'm, okay. I didn't know I was making a confession, but I, my, name is, my name is David Swanson. I'm reading Harry Potter for the first time. Thank you for the grace. And I'm reading it to my youngest son, Winston, because he is the only other person in our family who has not read Harry Potter. Now, we are just through book two, so... I've avoided spoilers for about 20 years, so do your best to to not spoil the book for me. Now, I don't think this is going to spoil it for any of you who've not read it, but but Dumbledore is the, he's like the, 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 he's like the, the person in charge of, of Hogwarts. And, and Harry is just enamored with, with, with Dumbledore. He thinks the world of him. He is impressed by him. He is in awe of him. He is, uh, there's some fear and trembling before Dumbledore. And what I've noticed about Harry is that every time he gets in trouble, every time he finds himself in a situation where it appears as though he's messed things up really badly, his instinct is to think, oh, this is going to be the thing that causes Dumbledore to expel me. 
uh, this will be the moment where I have let him down so much that I will have to leave Hogwarts. Harry's view of Dumbledore is far too small. His view of what Dumbledore is actually up to is far, far too small. Harry's view is just, how do I look in this situation? What have I done wrong? When what Dumbledore is up to, the best I can tell from just two books, is something far more significant than one person's behavior. Are you making the connections? Sarah, am I right? Am I in the ballpark at least? I know you've read all of them, so okay. I hope I didn't say something heretical about Harry Potter here. That's going to come back to bite me later. Instead of a self-centered, fearful response, Jesus' return invites something very different, which is that it invites us to live very differently than we would otherwise have lived. What is your emotional response to Christ's return? Does your emotional response include hope? Let's say it like this. Is hope most of your response, emotional response to Christ's return? If not, if hope is not on your lips when you consider Jesus' return, then maybe your view of God's salvation is too small. Because Isaiah says in the passage that Sonia read, on that day, they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. That sounds hopeful to me. That sounds joyful to me. That sounds like a blessed day to me, something to be excited about, to look forward to. If, if, if you have not yet placed your faith in Jesus, consider that hopeful future that is promised to us by, by the God who created you and made possible to you through the life and death of Jesus Christ. Hope for the future inspires faithfulness today. Now, this faithfulness is a, is a way of living. Paul says it's like living in daylight. He's playing around with this idea of the day of the Lord, and he contrasts living in daylight with the works of darkness. Now, I see two uh, broad categories in the works of darkness that Paul identifies here. There's first, there's four, and then there's two. The first four are reveling, drunkenness, and then sexual immorality and sensuality. Sensuality would be something like unbridled lust. This is self-indulgence. This is a, a purposeful disrespect for the limitations of our humanity. This is a, a, a purposeful disrespect for God's intentions for what it means to be fully human beings. This is a, an insatiable desire. Now, this is not Paul saying that our desires are bad. Let's be very, very clear. You were created to be a desiring being. What, what is on display here is rather a desirable that has take, a desire that has taken control such that it cannot be quenched. It cannot be satiated. I always need more. And then the second category is, includes quarreling and jealousy. 
which don't seem to connect with the first four. The first four are rather personal, whereas the second two are clearly damaged community. And, and I would say that these two actually connect with a passage that came before this, in which Paul says that love does no wrong to a neighbor. So, so here is a, a vision of the works of darkness, which actually damage our neighbors, damage the community. In my experience uh, as, a, as a pastor, uh, Christian ethics, the, the, the Christian way of living, is often portrayed both by non-Christians and also by Christians as, as a kind of individualistic morality. It's almost a prudishness. Here's the list of all the things that Christians do not do. That, that, that's my experience of, of, of how we often think about Christian ethics. So that when we hear this language of, of daylight, what we might hear is that God is spying on you. God has the list, and he's keeping very close tally. Is God is Santa Claus. You better watch out. You better not shine. That's a warped song, by the way. Like, that's, a, that's some serious parental manipulation, but, but that's another sermon. God has the list, and he's checking all the boxes of everything that you have done wrong. However, Paul is here showing us something different. You see, the works of darkness ignore God's hopeful future. It assumes that the best we can hope for is to try to quench our unquenchable desires no matter the impact on ourselves or our communities. But Paul says we actually have a choice to live differently. We have the choice to throw off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. We have a choice to walk decently. We have the choice to put on the Lord Jesus. Our ability to choose lives of moral integrity are inspired, our ability is inspired by this hopeful future. Here's, here's one way to think about this. It's not that your good or righteous behavior leads to a hopeful future. It's that a hopeful future is breaking into the present, which changes how we live today. Now, that's really, really important. And my hunch is that most of us default to the former rather than to the latter. My good and righteous behavior leads to a hopeful future. And how many of us know how heavy of a burden that can be. Because how many of us are capable of living up to not even God's righteousness, but the righteous standards we create for ourselves? Let me tell you what I think is a good enough life for me to have a hopeful future. How many days until you fail at your own standard? I don't even need days. Give me, give me a good hour and I'm done. I'm out. I have cashed out. It's not, church, it's not that our behavior leads to a hopeful future. It's that God's hopeful future in Jesus is breaking into our present so that we cannot help but live differently today. 
One will crush you. The other will allow you to live with hope in all sorts of circumstances. Believe it or not, I'm almost done. Uh, as, as, we, as we enter this Advent season, a season of prayer, a season of reflection, one of the things that we can do is to allow our lives to speak to us, to be a mirror for us, to give us insight about what we actually believe about Christ's return. Your body, your life, your assumptions, your instincts can help you know what you actually believe. Does your life today, as you are living it, reveal a hopeful vision of God's justice and righteousness? I don't mean like, what would you write on paper if somebody asked what you believed about God's future? I mean, how you're living today, the decisions you're making today, your instincts today, your assumptions today, do they reveal a hopeful vision of God's future of righteousness and justice? Or, or does the way we live today reveal something much smaller? <laughs> a diminished vision in which our selfish desires function as our ethical compass. If we reflect honestly, all of us will find, I mean, all of us will find ways that our choices and our actions fall short of reflecting God's hopeful future. So what then? What then? After we have allowed our lives to reflect what we actually believe about God's hopeful future, what then? Then we let the hope of Christ's return shape how we live today. We let the hope of that future day shape how we live today. Hope for the future inspires faithfulness today. Zach, would you be up for coming on up? Thank you. So what does your life reveal about your posture toward the future? If people could just watch how you're living today, what would they say about what you believe about the future? If people were to look at your life today, would they say, this is somebody who is living as though there is a reality coming that I haven't yet totally experienced? Or would they say, oh yeah, your life, this life totally makes sense. Given the way our world works, given who's in charge, given the way that power works in this world, given what we consider to be the winners and the losers, your life makes total sense to me. Or would they say, I like you, but I don't really understand you. <laughs> this is interesting to me, but clearly there's some information that I don't have access to that you are living in response to. Are you with me, church? Paul writes that we can put on the Lord Jesus Christ. The hope that we have for Christ's return when God's judgment sets everything right helps us to see the sinful attitudes, the self-centered behaviors that we can throw off today. But implementing the choice to live with moral integrity in light of the day of the Lord is not something that we can do on our own. We just can't. It is only through the power of Christ that we can choose a life of selfless love in which God is glorified, our neighbors are cared for, 
and we honor ourselves as image bearers of the living God. And putting on Christ is something we can do regularly. There's no limit of how many times we can put on Jesus. Because putting on Jesus is just the willful choice to turn our lives towards Jesus. To joyfully give ourselves again and again to his sovereign direction and care. As we observe the fast over the next 28 days, you can allow each moment of craving, no matter how small or how large, for a little bit of meat, not you, Pastor Michelle, a little bit of dairy, not you, Pastor Michelle, a bit more screen time, a bit of caffeine, any little craving to be an invitation to put on Christ. To remember the kairos times in which we live. Days charged with the presence of Christ among us through the Holy Spirit. You can put on Jesus. We are praying together morning and evening during Advent, the daily office, which is just a simple, regular reminder to turn to our Savior again and again throughout the day. It is the presence of our Lord Jesus which opens our eyes to the future hope which will be secured by our Lord's return. And it is the presence of Christ which makes possible lives of integrity today. Decisions and actions which stand out in a self-centered world while also pointing to the righteous and just world that is to come. As we come to the communion table this morning, come thankfully for the Savior who came for us, who is for us. Come reflectively about any way you've lived as though this night will be permanent, as though day is not breaking through the shadows. Come repentant for any decisions or actions which have succumbed to the insatiable and irreverent desires of this world. Come reminded of the hope that is yours in Christ Jesus. As Peter writes, by his great mercy, God has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Allow God's hopeful future, a future of righteousness and justice, a future when all will be made new. Allow God's future to fill us with wisdom and courage in how we live today. Let's pray. God of righteousness and justice, for whom all time exists in a singular moment, we thank you for the hopeful future that is ours through the Lord Jesus' death and resurrection. Forgive us for believing that the night will last forever, for living as though the shadows are permanent. Restore us to lives of faithfulness and integrity, that together we would bear witness to the coming day of the Lord. Inspire us through your Holy Spirit to say with the saints who have gone before us, O house of Jacob, come. Let us walk in the light of the Lord. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.